0: Hey there, welcome to Why We Roll, a tabletop role-playing game design podcast. We're your hosts, Chris
1: Pickett, creator of the historical fantasy game Dance Macabre, and Wife Marshall, creator of the political
0: sci-fi game Still Fleet. Throughout the show, Chris and Wife hope to amplify new creative voices. We'll chat with different TTRPG designers focusing on the world of indie games. We take a curious approach to
1: game design, working through a range of mechanical and narrative questions that are pertinent to many designers, players, and GMs.
0: We hope to showcase fresh and even challenging ideas about what makes imagination-based games just so powerful.
1: Okay, let's find out why we roll. And we're live. What's up? Right. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Yeah. What's
0: up, Chris? Yeah. (laughs) Good to good to to hear from you.
1: Always good to be here. Yeah.
0: And um we're joined by a friend of um uh Stillfleet in general. Oh, knock my notebook over. Uh Ian Dirk, who's a uh, writer and scholar. Ian, do you wanna you wanna give a little quick intro, maybe?
2: Uh sure. Uh my name is Ian Dirk. Uh pronouns are he him. i Pretty sure, you know, because you can't I mean, you can you can't see me, but, you know, visuals are also confusing, too. Um, I uh, work at a large university in the southwestern United States. I try not to say which one, because then they can claim intellectual property, which do not want that. Um, And I've been a teacher for over a decade, and this is my first time working in a tabletop space and i think as we're getting into in a day it's or maybe in this conversation is that i might be a little bit different than some guests because i got into tabletop games as an adult so i'm really excited to be talking about uh tabletop design and game design and things and going on the journey
0: yeah for sure yeah i figured um that was one reason to have you on ian is because your book uh we're finally um you know not just editing but but have laid out so Mm -hmm. it's going to be printed soon which will soon meaning it, it takes several months but you know you'll eventually get a book that you wrote for Stillfleet, uh, and we can talk about that a little um but it's something you know chris and i have talked a lot about it on the show you know how do you write and design games and game books and products and you know all the whole process um but it is interesting to think about coming to that as like a, a newer hobby and not something because uh, chris mm-hmm. i take it you like like i have been obsessed with these things for so many decades so it's just like yeah. i've always wanted to do that
1: so. yeah absolutely yeah it was uh i think yeah we, we've talked about this in the show before. I think I was like 12 or 13 when I picked up the first uh, Dragon Game product and was immediately taken in by it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is, that is really interesting. Uh, what's What are you working on right now, Ian?
2: Um, I'm working on a book. We're finishing up, like um, White said, we're finishing up a book called Kadida, which is, I guess, uh, it's called The Gazetteer, but it's kind of like an expansion on... Stillfleet to have more of an espionage system with a new setting as well that's very focused on spy craft espionage and the sort of political intrigue aspects of Stillfleet. So it's really something that I think is not really like doing new things in Stillfleet, but really trying to move the focus of Stillfleet, like taking a focus that was already in Stillfleet, I should say, and really putting it on those like anti-capitalist, anti-colonialist themes and putting those very upfront.
0: Yeah, and I would just say it's you've written um a nice long supplement, kind of like, uh, like Chris, I don't know if you remember the classic D&D. Um, there were, there was a series that was red and then there was a series that was blue and the difference between them was always, it was like a conceptual difference that was kind of interesting, but it so, yeah. kind of extended D&D with, with rules and like kits or what later would be, you know, subclasses or prestige talking, classes or
1: whatever. Are you talking about basic expert, which then went basic expert, champions, masters, something else, I think, BCE. Like, I have no idea. Eternals. I, I think
0: I'm, talking the second edition just uh the supplements they were supplements that came out all the time that were softback books that were 100 or 200 pages that had all kinds of good stuff and they varied wildly um, but they had some i think the best writing and art because they were sort of like other creators getting to you know there was like i remember one was called book of the ninja um, and it was really interesting setting where it was like what if D but ninjas yeah um <laughs> and one was called the book of the villain and it was totally different it was one of the blue series and it's sort of very conceptual so it wasn't about <laughs> like monster stats it was like how do you tell a story with interesting villains that aren't just a gang of goblins attacks you you kill them a gang of goblins attacks you you kill them now it's a gang of ogres attacking you um so i think there's a tradition of like taking a game and like someone else writing for it where they're really thinking perpendicularly if that makes sense to the main like thrust and just coming up with like their take um it's it's kind of like a branching tree thing
2: is what you're saying? Like, you know, someone sees this sort of main sort of trunk and then branches off, where looking at some of the still Fleet mini-ventures, like some people go heavily into the mystery, heavily into the sort of exploring a space station. Um, like uh, with another one of the earlier ones, like the Rain Thieves, where it really is about exploring this sort of environmental conditions. Like what is it like to be almost more of a survival game in a way? And this one, Kadida, is probably getting at the like, like the sort of like Byzantine politics of the far future of how do people reason through that and also trying to put in some consequences in the game which is really what motivated me to get started with Kadita in the first place is to change the stakes and consequences from the dragon game you kill the goblins but then there's no consequences to right you just kind of win and I thought about it in terms of if you just murder hoboed in in our world like if you just ran around killing someone like someone would have there might be some accountability to that at least in theory hopefully right? Like someone would be upset by it. Someone would be hurt by it. Someone might come looking for you. Um, and that's part of what I thought about Kadita is that you can't just hurt somebody without there being a pushback.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, Chris, I don't know if you, if you have questions. I mean, I was just going to kind of, um, ask some more intro questions about Kadita as a book. Um, and maybe we could talk about the book design process. And Chris, I don't know if you I mean, partially I think this could be a, you know, an interesting conversation about, like, how do you make a good book for an RPG? Um, what kinds of, yeah, like what supplements would you want to see for any game and your own game? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm also interested in, uh, so you, you came to tabletop gaming more, more as an adult, which I think is maybe not as rare as it once was. I think that more and more people are getting into the hobby in their 20s, 30s, even 40s now. Um, but what, what did that look like for you? How did you how did you start in on all of this?
2: Um, I think the short. Like, well, the answer is basically, I was in my like late 30s, and I knew I was the kind of person who was going to have a midlife crisis.
1: <laughs> it's good to know. Like,
2: I just knew that about myself. Where I, I said like, I am the type of person who's just going to have one of those midlife crises, and instead of trying to fight it, I was like, I needed to pick a wave to ride. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking like i don't want sports cars i don't want something expensive i just have to pick something and go with it you know and just ride that sort of you know emotional wave and try to think about something that maybe i didn't have much of an opportunity to get into as a kid and some of that came with tabletop games that i grew up in a small town in that very pre-internet era and since i was the oldest i didn't have an older sibling to get me into it um and I was in a small enough community that if you were playing the dragon game, you had, like, one group of people you could play the dragon game with. And if those group of people happened to be jerks, then you weren't going to play the dragon game. Right. Um And so I think... Getting older has made it a lot easier because there are a lot more, it's easier to find people online. And I think that makes a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you can find people to play online and also just more people of different levels of experience and also a wider variety of experiences mm-hmm. that coming into a well-established game. Like when you were describing the various DD, like masters, champions things, I just had the like glazed over, like, oh my goodness, how do where do you start feeling? Um, But with a lot of cool things about the indie space in a way, which is what I really liked about Stillfleet, is since I was not from the, obviously not from the very beginning, but from a very early phase, I felt like, okay, I can be a beginner with almost everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? That's what's really cool about the development of independent and smaller games is that almost everyone who comes in is a beginner. And and that's the thing that like having these smaller spaces or these types of indie spaces opens up opportunities for people who just didn't, internalize the logics of a tabletop game, you know, in their teenage years. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really what makes it accessible. And also something I liked about the Still Fleet system was I felt like I could grasp it so much easily without having a tutorial video to help me create a character.
1: Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, in the last like you know, 10, 15, 20 years with the indie RPG scene coming up more, I think you're right, the internet has facilitated a lot of that conversation. Uh, there are a lot more rules-like games where you can, you can just kind of walk into it and have a general grasp of how to play. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. That's something that my partner and I do. My partner Jen and I run one-shots for people who have never, kind of similar to you, like never got into it when they were teens or in college or whatever. I've always been interested, wanted to do it. And I mean, we, we just run the most rules light games possible because it's like, here's how you play. You don't have to memorize 30 pages of rules. It's one page front and back and you just get into it. Which does make accessibility much easier for I think, a lot of people.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's almost the norm now to do rules light, which is yeah. where it's almost funny. I mean, I felt like when I was ten years ago, moved away from D twenty games of any kind, even OSR games, and from PBTA um, and developed Stillfleet, which I thought was, was was pretty similar to to you know Apocalypse World to me um, in terms of the level of rules crunch. Mm-hmm. So now I would say it's probably medium crunch, but at the time it was like almost two options. It was like D&D, Shadowrun level complexity, or what I thought of as rules of light. Um, now I see there is much more of a spectrum on the light end, which I'm, I am not personally even as interested in, but it's become like the norm. And so it's almost like, oh man, Steel Fleet seems like overwhelming. And I'm like, whoa, this game is a lot simpler. Than yeah. <laughs> like most of the games, all the D100 games, all the D20 games I grew up playing, and, and loved um, the D10, you know, the White Wolf system, which works well, but it, it does have a lot more scores. Um, yeah. And it has just a lot more kinds of rules and things that can modify um so even though I like, uh, you know, as a maximalist, I like coming up with new ideas. So there's lots of new ideas in Silphite that the core system very simple. And I think most newer designers probably, if you had to put them in one or the other category, I feel like indie trends toward that parsimony of the, the actual system is has very few elements. You know, so you can do a lot of things with it or whatever, but um, I don't see as many people doing systems with like tons and tons of complex crunchy rules. I'm sure people are out there and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to them on the show. It'll be great. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Ian, it was, it was different if you had joined those jerks at D&D uh, in second edition or whatever. You might, you might have, you know, had a different idea about what complexity in, in games looks like. But I'm glad it yeah. didn't seem overwhelming listening to it on a podcast. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, that I should, in going back a step, that I encountered it like a lot of people through the Fun City podcast and their ARC Float Cities, how I encountered Steel Fleet as a system. Because in that midlife crisis, I thought, and also... I just have an aesthetic dislike for Western medieval fantasy. I don't mm-hmm. know why I just do like something about like swords and sorcery in that Western European sort of medieval style. just doesn't click with me. I don't get it. Right. And I, I appreciate what it is, but something about it just doesn't, doesn't connect. Um, and so that's part of why I was compelled by something like in the fun city podcast by Shadowrun Cause it was, it had a lot of that stuff without that aesthetic on top of it.
1: Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But it
2: was just way too complex.
1: <laughs> yeah, Shadowrun is so complex. Oh god. Um, I yeah, I also like that about Shadowrun. It it, it takes the silly fantasy elements, but then it's like, no, but we're a cyber we're a cyberpunk game too. Don't worry. Like you right. can be a, you can be an elf, but still be a hacker at the same time, which is always nice.
0: Yeah, I love that, the, and they have a political dimension, even in OG uh, Shadowrun, which obviously. Um, the Fun City crew has taken in such a great direction and, like, doubled down on the cli-fi and sort of political and mm-hmm. um, social justice, like, questions nascent in Shadowrun, but even in the original game, like, the, the fact, like, a dragon ran for president or whatever, it just felt, yeah. you know, in the in the end of history 90s, uh, where everything, you know, neoliberalism kind of looked a certain way, it was like, oh, yeah, like, it, it almost predicted, like, a Trumpian rise in, like, populism and just was like, yeah, but what if elves? Um, which is just such an interesting, like, take on like contemporary politics so i I do have to give shatter credit for that Um, yeah yeah
2: that having like a near future setting makes like the political conflicts of today a little easier to like easier Mm -hmm. to sort of put on like our politics in a way that something like you know those games that are set in a medieval fantasy setting because the politics are so different it might be so foreign to people living in you know the u.s or western europe in 2023 Mm -hmm. like yeah The politics are so different to us that like, how do you negotiate those power relationships just doesn't feel as connected as it might in a more contemporary setting. But I still think Stillfleet, even though it's in the far future, it's able to grasp with those things because of some of those um, historical analogs.
0: Yeah, but there's a lot of analogy drawing. I mean, you're right. It it is harder in that sense. That is a downside Mm -hmm. of setting something far in the future um, is, and I think like Chris, you do a good job with it with Natsuma Cobb with the kinds of interesting narrative structures um, in late medieval France and making it specific and building from there without asking people to read history books. Yeah. Um, But you have to like think through that because it feels more distant. I think you're right, Ian. And if you have a game set in, I would say roughly from World War II, like anything before World War II begins to feel really different. Like, you know, for one, like the racism, misogyny, which is bad in the 40s and 50s, obviously, but it gets, it's so much worse the further back, you know? And then I think you can go up to like, Climate disruption has led to like serious changes um maybe even you can go all the way to like the expanse you know I think somewhere between the expanse and world war two um, but outside of that sort of window, I think games just it's it's hard to do a political game um so weirdly I mean it's weird to say that having set still feet far in the future but it, it, that was always sort of um the the mission the joke whatever it's
2: um, hard too because you have political formations in the far future that we haven't considered yet you know where you have to do but it's also a good opportunity where you can have an imagination of something that has not yet been formed.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
2: You know, that's kind of what we are hoping with what I'm hoping with, with Kadita is that someone will come up with a political formation that I didn't think of, you know, as a way of seeing a possible better world, I suppose.
0: Right. Like built like out of the elements you've given them. They're like, Oh, I right. found this in here for you. Mm-hmm. Chris, how does that work? Does that ring a bell at all? I know it's such a different setting with historical fantasy. Like yeah. you hope people, the, the work they'll do, quote unquote, work in quotation marks, like, again, not assuming they're going to read tons and tons of pages of history, but like how to use your game. And like, do you care or do you have ideas for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing, the thing that I keep on thinking of is, um, you know, one of the texts that was really influential on me when I was starting to write Dance Macabre is uh, Barbara Tuchman's A Distant Mirror which is about 14th century Europe. It's mostly about France, but it's about Europe in general. Um, and I keep on thinking, like, it's funny how the distant mirror works in both directions. So it works with, like, you know, historical fiction. And, you know, we're, what she means by that is, like, it's like our time, but also alien enough from our time that we can recognize parts of it, but other parts of it are ineffable or, or kind of like just, you know, I'm never going to understand how a, a 14th century peasant thought or acted in the world. Um, maybe there are some things that I can kind of parse out from that, but for the most part, it's just a radically different experience, even though we're both humans, yada, yada. Uh, and I, it, that works with speculative fiction when we're looking at the future as well, um, where it's it's close enough to our time that we can, we can talk about the politics that are happening now, but then far enough away that it allows for a large uh, amount of interpretation about what could happen in the future. Um, wait, what was your question? What time?
0: No, I like that. I, I was just curious... Um you know, in terms of, I've asked this sort of before, but it's something I I do think about um, with historical fantasy especially, because like high fantasy is more dreamlike in a way, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want, and I think more trends toward more quote-unquote apolitical. Yeah, It's it's harder to inject those real-world analogs of juicy, you know, social tensions of any kind, because you're like, what economy? I'll just make gold with my hands, with magic. (laughs) But I think like your game is, you know, there's no magic, so it's It's closer to that feeling of like, all right, well, I can kind of imagine being "quote unquote" a peasant who now, Mm -hmm. you know, is fighting mutants in this Castlevania-esque setting. But, um, but you know, there's no like wizards coming to save me. You know, I need to like get out there and do my thing. But I think it's—I don't know—it's interesting to think about the political formations. I guess to Ian's point about like you can sketch out some factions, like you know, that's a term we use generally in game design.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But like, what do you? You know, how much do you care? I don't know. I, I guess it's just interesting. It's 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 the other end, like you said, of the the spectrum from the far future is like not even the distant past, but just before capitalism. So you're in this very different, you know, mindset. Um, Yeah. I
1: think one of the nice things with writing against the is that, uh, you know, a lot of the time period that I've placed it in, you know, a lot of what we could consider modernism started at that time period. So you have these kind of like early inklings of capitalism, like mercantilism on the rise, things like that. So there are these kind of touchstones. So the way that I've kind of handled it is just make the class politics really blunt and really obvious uh, where it's like, yeah, lords are pretty bad, uh merchants generally not very cool people, uh, and just like kind of keeping it really didactic that way, which I guess you can do with sci-fi as well um if you want to kind short in, yeah,
0: yeah, it's almost harder to make it um less um blunt, but I also think that's one of the problems of like games having a political position is like, well, in the real world, you could also say some things are just bad, yeah <laughs> to other things. There are lots of complicated things, but there are aspects of, of political blocks in our actual political economy today that are just sort of straightforwardly like, oh, that's bad. Um, so it's well, an much, interesting way of... Go ahead. No, no, just how much of that do you bring into your game? And, and you know, what, what assumptions can you make about your audience? I mean, those become somewhat strategic questions, if that yeah. makes sense. for sure. Well, and sometimes, too, like, you,
2: you know, what can be helpful is like, if you say, like, the lords are bad and the merchants are bad, but they're bad in different ways mm-hmm. and for different reasons, right? And that's what really pulls... A game from out of that sort of like they're just goblins or they're just ogres you know it's like the mm-hmm. lords are bad and they're bad in this specific way right. the merchants are probably also doing bad things but they might not think they're doing bad things right, right? and that's right. really what we want to get at in like in settings like Kadida and it's part of why I focused on spycraft and espionage so a lot of people who are doing bad things for good reasons, or maybe they're not sure what their reasons are anymore. And that's a big part of like spy fiction more generally, is like once people are in that gray zone, um it's more complicated, right? Yeah. How do people deal with that and grapple with that up front?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity there.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the ambiguity that's produced, I think something a narrative thread that runs through these different genres. And I'm just thinking of medieval France and thinking of Shadowrun, you know, the, the revelation that the modern world has these kind of fay elements and yet they're also just like us like they're gonna like be influencers and run for president and and do corporate bad things and then you know you jump ahead to like Stillfleet, um where it's sort of today in our politics but sort of actually very cosmically zany um and i think in each setting you can kind of lean into like this is all normal or you can say well there's been some sort of apocalypse in the in the sort of greek and and critical theory sense of there's been a revelation a change in, in not not that the whole world has died but like our whole social world has died and we have a new social world inhabit. And meanwhile, a lot of the same stuff is there. Um, Because again, the planet didn't actually get blown up by like the Death Star. It's just like some order has has passed on. So um, like I was thinking of like apocalypse, uh, famous apocalypse stories like um, The Walking Dead, right? It starts off with like people acting the way they really would, but it goes on so long that eventually people form these wildly different social formations because they just do live in a very different world than we do. Um, so I think Chris, like your game definitely lends itself to that where you could imagine starting off being like, no, I'm going to do normal medieval guy stuff. Just, I got to avoid some mutants. And eventually it is more like walking dead, right? You're like completely different morality and and aesthetics and everything. Um, and I think with still fleet, I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit, um, we've tried to keep that tension of like, we're just on the edge of there's going to be colonialism and you know, that's the phase, the imperial phase of capitalism is happening and you can kind of stop it maybe. And like, that's kind of the point. But I think uh is really interesting because it jumps into like, okay, there's a specific area where we're already in this Cold War setting. And there there it has been revolutionary, you know, there is a socialist state. Um, it isn't perfect. And there's all these different factions that have different ideas about what capitalism looks like, what socialism looks like. Um and in terms of fun gaming, uh, I'll just say Ian's done a great job with the three ventures, the, the one free mini venture and the two that are in the book that are that are longer and more, you know, they have tons of, of fun stuff in there. Um, thinking about how to like mobilize those to get people to like Make different choices, um, and there's a lot of factions. There's there's like 42, I think, wow. or something there's, like that.
2: There's 40. There are 41 factions, and only one of them is not playable. I think is the way to get at it.
0: <laughs> or like two. I think the spin wraiths and the Fists of Siloth. You're not you're not really supposed to play as like the fascists. Uh, but I think there, the others all have like stats. For, if you wanted to, they give you some you know social advantage or disadvantage. But very simple. There's not a lot of rules. It's more just like hey, there's actually. Kind of like in the u s if you just if you if you're not one of those peoples like everyone's either voting for Biden or they're voting for Trump there's two parties you know if you're like a little more complex about your analysis, you could probably come up with like forty blocks of you know what I mean like there'd be like kind of tech libertarians like survivalist evangelical libertarians you know you'd have like this kind of spectrum matrix that would be pretty complex um, you can google that and see one of those pretty easily
2: it's. It's a thing I confronted and maybe you two would have different perspectives, but like sometimes when I had the idea of a faction, it wasn't that you were say part of the spin Wraiths or the fist of Siloth, which are very fascist leaning, but the idea that you could have an association and have been like a former member of those. Right. So I thought that would be an interesting character development, especially in a longer campaign of like, people would treat you like you were part of a fascist group and like sort of thinking about de-radicalizing, right. Part of why Mm. I was wondering about like, the idea of you had this association and character arc is getting out of that association but on the other hand if you offer people the tools to say play as the fascist like does that encourage them to do so right? right and that's maybe where i have as a perspective of where you know is that line of like do you let people play as the fascist character maybe trust them to do the right thing or do you just sort of shut off that tool
1: yeah right. it's not that simple it's a big question i mean i think uh, i, I- on this before on the show and i'll do it again uh the, the history of games workshop is a good example of uh of how that has played out in mm-hmm. in real time and space um, where it's like yeah this yeah these are the fascists we're making fun of them we're having a good time we're punks making war games making fun of fascists and now it's just like selling fascism uh you know for a lot of money really
0: yeah and and thinking of new and cooler, like literally just big fucking guns that the yeah. fascists could have <laughs> yeah. skulls on the gun. It's like a skull on the gun, a skull on your helmet. Like it's so over the top. Um, which yeah, it could be parody. Except one of the problems of that, I think, from a from a ludology perspective or whatever, you know, it's like you're you're asking people to be that character. And unlike what Ian just said, you're not doing the American History X. Like you're not saying you're yeah. an ex Space Marine. You're saying no, no, you're a Space Marine. You're a Space Marine. Yeah, like, you're a space marine. The God Emperor. <laughs> right. So I think they may, maybe missed a step if the punks wanted that to be a critique. I think um, they I think they definitely missed a few steps. So. It's, but, uh,
2: it's also hard, too, in that Games Workshop Warhammer 40k world where it's like um, you have a world where like everything else is also terrible.
0: Yeah. Right. right. That's,
2: you know, where it's like it's not that, you know, where you have like just a bunch of other species that are just basically kind of like they're all goblins they're the orcs they're just all trying to kill you yeah Yeah, they don't really have much of a culture or history they're just like we're just gonna kill you so which again like part of it is that war game there's also a difference between maybe like a tabletop role playing game and like a war game you're just like you just have you know i just have dudes and all i need to know what is color of my dudes
0: Um, (laughs) yeah but they have backstories which are hilarious chris i don't know if you've read these it's more of a war game person than me but i i remember going on a wikipedia hole or something it wasn't even like wikipedia right it's like the fan wiki for 40k yeah or maybe the and or the official site but they have like great sort of um it's like reading about like catholic schisms in you know uh, before before the reformation but all of the different space marine companies and how they beefed with each other over time um so it's it's it is interesting that like on the one hand i think you're right ian that most players are just like what color are my dudes so my faction is just blue it's like kind of meaningless it's blue with the cool skull. Like you could be, you could have any politics, and you know, I think like many of us admire some of the art in all of these games, whether it's D and D or 40k or whatever. But I do think there's people who get really into the like, oh no, the uh the whatever, like Nighthawk Brigade separated from the Solar Legionaries uh, 15,000 years ago, and all of the things I read because I was sort of searching for it. They all were exactly what you said. Their yeah. their storyline is always like we are the baddest ass dudes who've killed the most dudes, and now we're gonna kill even more dudes with like yeah. very little sort of thought to like. Do any of these people have hobbies or like, you know what I mean? Like what, how else does politics work in this universe? Um, yeah. I've, I've Spoiler, read, it, it doesn't.
1: I've, I've never read any of the black library books from Games workshop because they do have their own publishing arm that just puts out novels mm. about, and short stories mm. about the characters and about the factions and the legions and all of that stuff. I've never read any of those books. Uh, I have read a lot of the, similar to you, like the Wikipedia, like fan wiki, Ages and it, you know, it's all, it's all plot. There's no real character development or growth or anything like that. Right. It's just like plot after plot after plot. But it, yeah, I mean, I would actually say that as a former 40k player, most people take that narrative part pretty to, like pretty seriously. They take it to heart oh, really? and will, you know, it, it'll, I think it does ultimately boil down to like, well, my guys are, are green and your guys are blue, so we're going to blow each other up now. But I, you know, like I think the hobby aspect, a lot of people will bring that kind of narrative structure into how they paint or how they construct their army or
0: whatever. Um, right. So they're I mean, aware anyway, of it. They, they have al- a sense of the yeah. backstory and the
1: lore. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the lore is probably one of Games Workshop's biggest selling points, really. Um, but that and right. cool, cool skull guns, uh, which are. Right. <laughs>
2: Well, it's a way to introduce people to an idea like wargaming without the complications of actual history. Yes. In that, like, there's plenty of war games that are like, oh, you could play as the Nazis, you know, which right. there's a whole bunch of World War II games. And people are like, mm, if, you know, if, if I'm playing as the Germans, like, I am the fascists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, talk about like, I think Rob Zachney had written about like, you know, war games about the Civil War. And it's one thing where you're playing the war game just to be like, okay, I want to see how these tactics and things work out when the political issues behind them no longer matter, right? Where they're no longer relevant. But when you start thinking about like the idea of, you know, race and racism is very alive in America, like a Civil War war game takes on a different thing. You can't just examine like how could the Confederacy have won at Gettysburg without like really getting into the cause of the Confederacy.
0: Yeah, and why you would want to walk through that as a narrative structure. Like um, why relitigate that? Because you're, to your point like tactics can be fun and we've all played video games where it's pure tactics and it's it's fun um but to relitigate something where there's people sort of that vile um and you're to inhabit in it, them with no you know again you're not flipping it you're not changing that narrative and saying oh they're reformed or x or whatever complicated anyway you're just being like yeah let's just straight up do it um i'll be robert e lee this time it's it's a it's kind of crazy to me that 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 those games still exist. I know most games I think and I grew up with were more sort of quote-unquote apolitical. Like D&D was presented to me as just, you know, yeah, they're goblins. They're purely evil. It's it's a Tolkien-esque dreamlike universe. It's not real. Um, and I think the OSR was partially about adding back the reality and then discovering and doing so. Oh, wow. Then then you add back all of the bad parts, too, and you have to decide how to orient yourself. Like, do you even mention that? Um, so, Chris, like I was surprised in the Wargaming book, which was was good, I thought. But they didn't mention that. I, I They specifically yeah. mentioned at some points, like, these armies. And I'm like, whoa, are, where's the box text that just says, hey, we know that some people play as, like, the Germans in World War II. That's pretty weird, actually, if you think about it. And just even acknowledge the weirdness. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, to some degree, modern game design, to me, there's, like, a... One of the boxes you have to check is, like, is there something really weird that I'm just pretending isn't there? Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if either yeah. of you have thoughts on that in terms of writing and planning a book, you know?
1: Yeah. No, I think... Uh... Yeah, I think about that more with with wargaming for sure because I do think that there's a, a tendency in that community to be just be like, eh, "It's fine." Like, it's we know we acknowledge it. It's fine. It's in the corner, though. We're just we're playing for the tactics. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Which, like, having gone to a couple of historical wargaming conventions, like you, you do see a lot of that, uh, especially mm-hmm. in World War One game or World War Two or like you know games that are set in like the the air quoting to the podcast uh, American frontier. And things like that oh, yeah. you, know, you really want to recreate Oof. these narratives but here we are doing it um yeah i don't know is that something ian that, that factored into when you started writing Kadita?
2: i think there's a lot you know in talking through it was so hard to really get at the idea yeah i, I guess the short answer is yes um <laughs> On a small level, one of the things that I really had to consider was the use of violence in the much smaller scale, in that one of the things that's true about a spy setting or espionage is that the violence is so much more intimate. So I thought about the not just the politics in the bigger sense, but also the politics of violence, in that uh, like killing somebody with a magical fantasy sword of power is very different than like killing somebody with your hands, or even just lying to them. like building up a friendship, building trust with somebody, and then knowing you are going to betray them. like That is what you're going to do. Um, where you get someone to have a real love or affection towards you, and then you're going to flip them around, because that's really what a lot of actual world and a lot of the work that inspired Kadida, that's what it is. right? It is trying to betray people in a very personal, intimate way. Um, and there's also a lot of discussion among the playtesters who are really kind about the politics of having torture as like a class power right in other words something you can just do like lots of tabletop games will have those like things that work narratively or something else but when we think about the ability when something becomes like a power in still fleet terms that you can just you can kind of just do it might encourage players to do that and we had to consider we wrote a little bit to say hey the torture in this game doesn't work like torture in real life right? It's not good for getting information. It's not effective as it is in, it's not as effective as it is in movies and TV shows. But given the setting that we had that dealt a lot with state violence, right? And political violence, uh, not having the idea of torture in there felt like that would be running away from the politics of that type of setting.
0: Yeah. And I think you you brought that up, like, because there's 40 or so factions, so it's, it's, it's set on a domed city on a world it's basically a dwarf planet, but it's a dwarf planet made almost entirely of osmium. Which the the, the lore for the lore heads, you know, is that it must be it's constructed by advanced aliens, right? It's there's no way osmium in in nature is the densest element. So a world roughly the size of a of a big asteroid or dwarf planet, you know, Ceres or Eris or something, but that was ninety nine percent osmium with just a, a shell of regolith, you know, dust on the outside, um, and then this this domed cities on top of it, and it's a it's a mining colony, right? That the the company set up the company in the game. Um, half of which now has gone anarcho-socialist. So there's like half of it is free and the other half is run by the company. Um, but that, that obviously this, this planet was set up by aliens as some sort of trap. I mean, that no one knows, but the company in the meanwhile was like, yep, we're just mining, uh, you know, rocks because we can. Um, but if you have that setting, then you would basically have gravity that is earth-like. So it's, all, it's right around one G, um, even though it's real small. So it's kind of the Petit Prince, like, you know, thing where you're big compared to the world, but the world's still, you know, it's still plenty big enough, um, but it all takes place in this giant dome city and the city is actually built by some advanced human I mean you know group but well before the company so the company just founded and just kind of relaunched it um, and then lost half now you have these 40 factions across the city all of whom have different relationships to power and sort of surveillance and policing and yeah there was that sense of like um you know what is a class in a game and how do you okay if you're if you're not trying to incentivize people to do murder hoboing space marine stuff and it's all takes place in this urban espionage setting then you have to have powers related to things that would happen in the cultural tropes, the players and GMs are coming in with like right. the works of Jean Le Carre or um, Ludlum or whatever. Right. Or the, the, you know, 007 books and movies. So, you know, you have to like flag those and, and when they could be really problematic and like weird, especially just at the table, like even taking out capital P politics, just it's weird interpersonally to have like really severe stuff happen. And so um, I think Ian did a great job, you know, sort of thinking through that. Uh, so just, you know, another, another shout out.
2: I mean, part of what was fun, too, was like trying to think about the classes and building character classes that would be effective, and especially in the world of Steel, like in the universe, sort of in the created fictional world of Steel Fleet that would not be underpowered compared to the other characters, right, to have those social powers and things like that. And that was one of the big playtesting challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And also sometimes trying to, like, try and not like to fill in or to maybe sort of take different directions for builds like like how would someone might spec a character but the uh, one that really took off was a hook which is almost like a detective class like their job is to solve mysteries navigate factions um we have a scrubber class whose whole job it is to cover up problems like you did a little bit too much you maybe you did a little bit of accidental murder hoboing you need someone to kind of be the you know mr wolf who comes in and takes care of it
0: Hey there, just a quick update. Uh, Since we taped this episode with Ian, we've actually published Kadita digitally. So if you go to uh, itch.io or rpg and you check out titles by the Stillfleet studio, Stillfleet, you can find Kadita, and if you want, you can pick up the PDF. It's really gorgeous. I think the book came out very beautifully. It's also uh, longer than we anticipated, so you're getting more extra bonus stuff that we hadn't really initially planned on, but Ian and I thought, you know, we just have to put it in there. Uh, so yeah, I encourage you, if you, if this episode uh, you know has uh, stirred anything inside you, uh, just go check it out. You can also check out our website, stillfleet.com, that will have more information and links uh, if you want to check out the PDF. We really appreciate everyone who supported us on Kickstarter. We are uh, currently working on bringing the book to life um, in print. It is, as I speak, uh, Lunar New Year, however, so we don't really have any new news there. We just sent the files off, waiting to hear back. Uh, but it is going to be a beautiful book in print as well. We promise. If you like The Rain Thieves, it's going to be like that, but full of spies, even longer. Um, and possibly uh, weirder. Yeah, let's let's just say it. It's weirder. So, uh, yeah, if you like uh, the Span idea, you know, the haunted DMZ uh, sort of Chernobyl feeling vibes. If you like spy stories, you know, I love Slow Horses. I'm um, pretty obsessed with the Bond movies. Uh, and really, if you like politics and you like thinking about these things in a very fun, silly, goofy, um, appealing way with your friends, not annoying, <laughs> um, then, you know, it's a great game for that. And Kadita really makes it much better. Uh, by offering all kinds of new rules and a lot of fun ideas for stories. So big shout out to Ian. Uh, thanks for being on the show and thanks for the book. Uh, we're very honored to have published it. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, that's really, that's really cool. And actually something I haven't really thought about a lot, and I guess this applies to Dragon Game or any other game that has these kind of like supplementary add-ons that, that come in after the kind of main book series of books but yeah you really do have to think about how you're going to allow classes to translate between a specific setting and the larger game and make sure that that's all balanced so that you know if somebody reads Vita or they want to continue a campaign after going through the book like they're not going to feel like they have to start over again if they don't want to
0: uh, right yeah you know. and that people can jump around and that's very much still fleet because it's model of course on you know Planescape in large part right from D&D um you can go between worlds. That's the whole idea. So right. you would want to have a game where someone... And this is... We just ran it. Aaron H., one, another member of the studio, and I ran a three-part venture. Um, so three different four-hour you know, intro ventures, but they were all linked. So it's one story just playing out on three different planets about a couple who defect from Kadida. So they're, you're chasing them across planets, but it's different groups of Void Miners being sent out each time. So some people wow. played through it and got a sense um, of the actual player of the arc. But it's almost as though... The metafiction the co- what the company knows is the the bigger story you know and and for you at each juncture they're only telling you limited information about these people they're like yeah could you just bring them in for questioning uh, just don't you know make sure we get their notebooks and like don't read whatever they wrote uh, and it's it's of course there's a lot of you know moral uh, issues in, in that one but it was fun because it was taking stuff from Kedida and kind of unboxing it and letting it play around in other worlds um, and I I've never been that big on like balance for everybody and I think it, it, you know Ian did a good job with balance where you could have a mix of classes from the core rulebook and then this first kind of major supplement where there are new whole new rules, whole new classes that are official, but not, um, you know, they are, as you just said, they're setting specific. Um, I don't know how much of this we'll be able to do in the future. I'd like to think our company will still exist and other people might want to write for it. But, you know, at least there's the core rulebook and then the Rain Thieves and Kadita is these two different artifacts of sort of interpretations, right? So I don't know, Chris, if you're already thinking ahead about you know the ways you'd want to extend, or would want other people to extend, or not extend. Kind of, frankly, your your main book. But oh yeah, um, yeah
1: I mean, we've, we've it talked about Doing yeah. different regional yeah. versions
0: of ancient It's like yeah, what does it look like in
1: Mongolia right now, or what? It do you know, whatever. Right. Um, yeah, that's really cool. So, Ian, what was the what was the pro- like? How, can you walk us through the process of starting to write Kodita and how you kind of like, you know, how do you even approach writing something that's supplementary to to a large document?
2: uh well the approach is to not worry about doing it correctly at first and just do it (laughs) i mean i think part of it was the other way i approached it was i was writing a dissertation when i started writing at the same time so the other uh unethical life pro tip is to use writing a book as a way to procrastinate from another very important large project and that's definitely good for your mental health and time management (laughs) so definitely do that um, but I think I just made up a setting and I sent it around on the Stillfleet Discord just to say, "Hey, what do people think?" Um, and Wyeth had contacted me, like saying, "Hey, do you want to turn this into a book?" And I sort of said, "Sure." And I kind of had to fill out. I'd filled out a bunch of stuff, like about like what Worshipful Kadita was like, and uh, which is the part owned by the Worshipful Company—that's their half—and then Free Kadita, and that's the other half. Um, I made my own little venture. And just play tested it around. And I think what was really helpful was having Wife and all of Stillfleet Studios just really um building that together and having that as um a large supportive process. And I think that's the other big thing is that it's very, it's very difficult to go by yourself and really relying on the help of others is what makes something work yeah. in a book process. Um and that I just could not have done it by myself, or it would have just lived as a Google Doc, and that would have been okay in its own way. Um, but I think that putting it into this space was recognizing the skills I did not have, like terrible at art layouts, not so good, uh, meeting deadlines, struggle with that too. So like having a lot of those things, um, to really get that support. And I think the process was just trying to sit down and write it out, build an outline, build a structure. And, um, there's one of the things there's just no substitute for just sitting down and doing it. I wish there was, but there just isn't. Um, And I think as a writing process, I try to just sit down and say, what did I think? Get something out and have people look over it and get the feedback from there. So I think that was really the big process. And I took more of Weitz's method of having an outline and organizing it because my method was just to write out almost just big blocks of text. And then, but I think having that structure was much more useful to say, okay, this is what I want to do here. This is what I want to do here. This is what needs to be in a book here. Um, And... I that's probably how I got, st- that's how it basically went through, um, getting started. I hope that answered your question.
0: It, no, no, I mean, and, um, from our, our perspective, we're just trying to make Cadita fit in, in certain ways alongside the, the Stillfleet Coral Book and the Rain Thieves and the Mini Ventures, you know, so they all have sort of shorter sections broken up in the, with the idea that somehow that's the right way to do it, but there's no, I mean, there is no right way to do it, right? Um, so it's, to some degree, you're always just like, oh crap, what's the last thing I did? It needs to look kind of like that. Why? Because of Weird sort of psychic inertia. um mm-hmm. And, you know, some idea of like brand management, it's like, what does that mean? Like, we're like this tiny, you know, indie company selling like a couple hundred books at a time. So it's sort of, we could do whatever we want. We could have done a, a giant nov- novel style book that was like a Lacar novel with light rules on the edges. And that probably in some ways would have been cooler, but like might have taken more thought. And so we were like defaulted to like, no, 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 let's make it look like a supplement to the core. You know, you open them side by side and you're like, cool, it's the same template. It's, you know, different art, but it's it's the same style of art, style of graphic design, right? Um, so I just, I always want to say, like, we I don't know what I'm doing either. Like, we're always making this up. And it's it's fun. It's really fun to make it up. But it also, you know, I don't know. Just We don't know what we're
2: doing. Um, and one of the things, one of the things that came up that was different about this book was that, um, where kadita versus the core rule book is that Kadida, you know, in various iterations it's still within the core rule book. It has a voice of a character in the universe. Right. Do you want to say that was...
0: uh, sort of how that works in Kadita, Ian?
2: Sure. Um, A lot of the way the book works is that large portions of it are written by the acting director of the Night Watch, um, Tafan. The Night Watch is kind of like, I guess I would describe it as kind of like the you know X-Files TV version of the FBI or something like that. That's how it is. <laughs> Tends to be in the um Still Fleet universe. But basically, the Night Watch is the sort of one of the intelligence agencies that administers Kadida. Um And it's written by the acting director as if you, the holder of the book, are the incoming director to be like, listen, you need to know how we're managing the situation. And along the way, there's different parts of the Worshipful Company who insert their own commentary in there. And so large portions of the book are written from the perspective of the Worshipful Company. But that's hard. That's a big challenge for a player to be like, are we? And that's sort of the same like Games Workshop thing. Or like, are you endorsing this versus are you like picking up on the voice? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, Should I share that's part of the, a comp? I mean, ahead. it's super early, so it's um, and obviously for the podcast, uh, we'll just have to describe it. But I don't know, Chris. Just out of curiosity, would, uh, would you like to
1: see what we on? This is I would love to. Yeah,
0: super. Uh, uh, this is not the latest comp. This is like a week old. The, the latest one is very far along. So this, I don't know if, um, if you can see. This is like our normal two-column, you know, text mm-hmm. broken up into chunks with bold leaders and rules in bold, and there's a red box about something, you know, affect-related. Um, so, sort of, you know, lying to the, the PCs and, and how that could work, or lying to other to other players, basically. Um, and then what Ian did is introduce the idea that a lot of the book is, like, not meta game designer text, but, like, diegetic text, meaning, like, in the world of the game. Right. So, this is, we just, um, this is FPO, but we're going to do something very similar to this, just really cleaned up, which is a dot matrix page, as though someone has sort of typed out a letter with a typewriter font and, um, and this is all from acting director Pethin uh whose first name is if you un- unredact the text because uh, we use you know black bars of redaction to make it more spy like but um you can actually see you know underneath it's it's not a problem uh it is uh, Amanda, so I don't know why Ian, you've blacked out every instance of her first name, but her name's amanda Pethin uh and she's a she's a gelasty. she's one of these five foot tall jiggly single celled axolotl shaped um, yeah. lo- Uh I
1: love that there's an amoeba alien named Amanda in <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so good yeah it really is like of course of course this is also they're in the in the core rulebook it's like they're like pacifists and then yeah. for some reason ian's like the head of the spy agency for on, for the company is like the one Gelasti, who's like um I, I think she's supposed to be uh like margaret Thatcher, right she's, she's just supposed to be this like very driven you know center right just like or far right like uh kind of crazy person but at any event um you know the, a lot of the book has this graphic design style where there's things taped in So in addition to features, you know, normal box text and games, we also have all these post-its, which are going to be cleaned up a lot. Oh, yeah, that's great. um, She has has her analysts. She has three analysts who are taping in things on top of the things she's taping in. So it's like our text, like our, the company, and then one of the characters, and then three other characters. Um, So there's a lot of styles that we made for this to try to bring to life a little bit of the, like, it's a living document dossier incomplete maybe this is wrong like maybe what you're being told is a lie
1: yeah.
0: um, so I don't know how much that helps but that was all to circle around Ian's point maybe you can't trust the information
1: uh, yeah oh, I mean what does it mean to have an unreliable narrator telling you how to play a game
2: it also affords a lot of interagency sniping which is mm-hmm. what I really wanted to make clear of like some of these notes are them like the different parts of the worshipful company like taking shots at each other to be like oh you're the, you know, you're the real fascist. Eh, you're not very effective at your job. Like, and they're, that's sort of that way that analysts actually do sort of like fight with each other.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that does a good job of setting up kind of interfactional discord, which is something that you want in this project as well, right? Like you want it to feel like there's a real grind between factions. And even if it's like granular, you know, within the co kind of infighting, that's going to kind of emphasize that even more for the players and for the GM. Really.
2: Right, it, right. Yes, go ahead, Ian. I was going to say, like, part of that too is to give some space for players that might struggle to figure out, like, how do I resist the Worshipful Company because it's so big? But once the Worshipful Company is broken down into smaller factions that are all fighting with each other, people can get those, players can get those inches of daylight to say, okay, what if I set this faction against this faction? Yeah. Then maybe, like, I can do something with that.
0: Right, and this is just one instance. There's a few of these throughout the textbook where the first analyst has, has said, you know, um, well, here's my thought on these on the stupid idiots that we supervise for the company. And then the other analyst has said, "Well, I disagree, actually." Um, so it's it's kind of lightly gesturing at the company is not only not you know actually omnipresent or omniscient; they also are not homogenous, right? They're, the company isn't one thing. It's lots of people who share some level of ideology that allows their their kind of center right extractive project to continue, but they can also be broken up into these these um, these different formations that have sort of disagreements. And I'll just show, we ended up doing this chart, which is, I, I intend it as like a joke or a graphic design exercise in InDesign, but it is, these are all the factions and their relationships to one another on one page, uh, which I think just looks cool. So I think I might keep it in, even though I'm worried people are uh, going to be sort of intimidated. Um, but looks, you don't actually, the yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say it looks like a paint by numbers <laughs> for the, for those who
0: can't see it it's like a sudoku that you have not like you've definitely done wrong <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> like yeah it's like pixel pixel art um yeah yeah exactly i mean i think um if the rules mattered more we would do it very differently i think that not that the rules don't matter but the the idea of joining a faction is just you get an advantage or disadvantage it's just a hustle so just like in the core rule book you have it sort of day job here your day job is interpreted more as like a day tendency you know what i mean like you have a general political thing you do social group you, you hang out with and that gives you some very relatively minor um you know score change um but uh the main thing that you know which i think works well is sort of point effect rules for factions so you can gain social status effects which are almost always faction related Some are like pan factionally like everyone hates you but basically the social status effects are like one faction, you've really pissed off these people. So every time you see them, they're going to attack you or they're going to demand something from you. And you could sort of accrue them kind of like diseases in Oregon Trail or like roguelike games, you know? Um, yeah. There is, there, is a
1: there is a roguelike that does that. Caves of Could, uh,
0: Yes, yeah. It's one of my, one of my
1: favorites. But uh, yeah, that's it's not a super robust system. But It's basically like if that faction hates you, they just attack you on sight kind of thing. Uh, right. But I no, I, I love that. I love that. Um, Trying to hustle different factions trying to see
2: how that goes. Uh, I also miss Mercenaries. Yes. Mercenaries <laughs> is so fun.
0: Uh, I, I love Caves of could. I've gotta try Mercenaries. Dwarf Fortress I tried because Mike uh, likes it and it yeah. is I found it unplayable. It was like this is this is too much. Caves <laughs> of <laughs> Oh, you're you're a big dwarf dwarf fortress fan? I could see that.
1: A, yeah, I, I like Dwarf Fortress a lot. Caves of could is my favorite. Of the genre
0: for sure uh, but uh, no yeah great. all this art is is uh, just pl- for placement so these aren't yeah. the actual files these are like super fast i didn't even bother removing the layer of background i just wanted to see where it would go
1: so um, so super
0: early but all this art is actually done a lot of the art in here is, is now done and this is, again is just a week old comp but we've played around a lot in this book with um overlapping stuff and in part um yeah, just Ian wrote a lot of tables, I will say. I remember you said your wife called this uh, Ian just writing tables for an entire book.
2: Yeah, she would look over my shoulder, and she's just like, there's just tables after tables after tables. And I'm like, it's not that many tables. And then I look at the book, I'm like, okay, it is That's a lot, a lot tables. of tables. <laughs> not just a lot of tables.
0: <laughs> I kind of love a table, I... but, you know, it's... yeah, go ahead
2: i was like well you know if you need to lay out a lot of information quickly but also just gives a lot of different choices which is what i really wanted to build into the ventures too Mm -hmm. of saying if you run a venture one way you can run the same venture and it could come out very different that Mm -hmm. i running some of the mini ventures and the ventures in the book i've run them a few times and the sort of uh groups that are encountered or the things that are encountered are so different from each other that someone could play the same venture And have a different experience. Like maybe they encounter, maybe you encounter some hostile agents once, or maybe you just encounter a friendly cat, and it's totally different experiences. Right. And it also lets people get into the, you know, get into the factions and politics in different ways because sometimes people, like different groups of players, will encounter different options.
0: Yeah, we just added actually. There are fungal cats called Menchie, so they're basically cats, but they're motile fungi. So they don't have orifices. They just are sort of—it's like a cat made of like a Giacometti kind of clay, you know, like a kind of skinny, lumpy cat, but with no, no openings, you know, just sort of cat shaped. But they—they act like cats in Kadita. They're the, one of the only native life forms to this rock, or maybe they're not native. I forget Ian what you said, but
2: they're—they uh, were imported time. because to um, a domed city has a problem of brain rats, the sort of telepathic rats that right. mind control and serve the horde that one does. you know like to sort of serve the horde of rats which float city fans will recognize um, but they needed something to control that and something that had and this was also inspired by one of white species the engine the sort of uh, cactus people and I had thought about like if you had a sort of fungal brain that was distributed could you be mind controlled and so mm. that's where I came up with the idea of something can't really be mind controlled if it doesn't really have a mind that can be read or controlled sure and so, what would hunt a brain rat is a cat without really having much of a, like a sort of brain that can be trans that like could be controlled or grabbed. Right. It's well, a like cat, a but not a.
0: It's it's a fruiting body, and the actual organism is right. this mycelium throughout the parks in Cadiz. It's a,
2: a non-hierarchical sort of sent you know, non like a heart. A non-hierarchical being would be harder to control.
0: Right. But so we just added Celeste so and Ian. So I mean, the last text I think we're adding to the book is a table about Menchie because we had space basically, like we have this little space here. But we also met, added this page because of a essentially formatting thing where we really wanted to not add more than like a little bit. So Ian wrote like you know the beginning of a section on pet shopping and how everyone loves these Menchie. But we didn't. He didn't actually write the whole section because we just we already had this memo by path and you know the diegetic thing and we're just slapping on top so this book has come together a little bit differently than some of the past ones um but been really fun where we're kind of going back and forth about you know not we're trying to stay in scope um but also allow ourselves to add like you know a fun idea here a fun idea there um and you know we both really like cats so ian and i mean and gay that's uh that's kind of been a big joke of just like well i guess we have to add some more cats we got a fourth yes. of a page left
1: uh,
2: yes we have to add <laughs> i mean cats. you have to right yeah. um, you have to yeah yeah in one of the mini ventures, if you don't try to pet the cat, it is an
0: automatic lose condition. So, it does say that in here. So, um, <laughs> I don't want to share too too much of the book, Pretty since good. especially this is such an early comp, and there's there's so much more art done now. So, I feel like we should have Ethan back on at some point and look at the art. But oh, definitely. Um, here, I'm stop sharing. But
2: Ethan did a great job with my terror, like my very incomplete art descriptions of like I want a gelasty that looks like uh, William H Macy in Homicide. <laughs> and and he we had a meeting once he said like oh i found someone on the on the subway who just looked exactly like that and i was like i feel sorry for the person who looks like an axolotl william h macy But all
0: right but you also kind of want to talk to that person like what's their deal yeah Yeah, i want to i want to know that Mm -hmm. person for sure god (laughs) that's horrible um I like, uh, Vex, thanks for joining us. Vex has pointed out, um, the, the, what hunts this is a great question for world building. I think that's really smart me and, um, I think that's, that was a fun way. I'd forgotten that was the sort of origin of, of Menchie's beyond the meta level of you just really like cats and wanted this to canonically be the one still fleet setting with cats. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I know, I love that it was actually a, a thoughtful way of saying, oh, how do I link it to sort of other worlds and other game elements? So it's not, it's not closed off, even though it's a dome on this, this rock sort of in the middle of nowhere. Um, it, because of the stiff works right and because it is part of the company it is connected to all these other worlds so it's it is a, very much a metaphor about divided cities um and in general you know kind of um the politics of a feeling like there's different territories there's safe and unsafe areas based on your political affiliation yeah. um which feels very very real right and a, and a source of tension in games that um other games for sure exploit but is not a central premise to me of like D and i mean not again to knock it just it's it's not a huge piece of that sort of world uh Game, Game Cosmos. Right. So, um, yeah, it was fun to meditate on. Um, it was fun to link back to other parts of Stillfleet, and, you know, I'm really proud of it, and I hope the, the final book is something we can, you know, whatever. We will we'll, might have to talk about it at some later point down the line. But Ian, you know, thanks again. I just wanted to, to sort of have you on and, and you know, let you chat about that. Um,
1: I can't you know. wait to play a recreation of Andrzej Zawalski's possession set in Canada instead of 1981
2: Berlin. Yeah. Uh, that that would be a, this would be a great setting for yeah. it. I mean, you've already got it started. Like you've already got you know walls and exactly. de- like a sort of yeah. zone in between. You um, can hop up You know, like decide. You can even decide where you want to start. Do you does that start in East Germany or West Germany? It's in or German Democratic
1: Republic. Or, it's in West Germany.
2: Okay.
1: Sam Neill's character comes back maybe from East Germany. It's hard to say. Hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah. All all it needs is some divorce drama and cosmic horror, and we got we got possession in Kadita.
2: It it would absolutely be in the spirit of Kadida to l- borrow in a not legally actionable way from other, <laughs> you know, Cold War
1: fiction. Yeah.
2: yeah, just say, this is what we're doing, which is really the start of Kadida, if you want the more specific thing. I was reading uh, Strange Skies over East Berlin, which is a great, unfortunately, out-of-print comic, um, which became Strange Skies over Free Kadida, and it is not legally actionable. It's different <laughs> enough.
0: And it, it's very different. I mean... Um... In the same way that you borrowed, it points from Le Car or Fleming yeah. um, or many other writers. And I think of um, my own influences and the things I've added. And, and so in the chapter I wrote was about the DMZ, the, ha- the the place where there's been so much hell science, so much sort of quantum physics hacking, psionics, effectively magic, has broken down physics along this strip. This sort of like whatever 12 mile tall by you know half a mile wide strip of the city that it's a DMZ, not because either side wants to give it up, but because when you go there, you might fall through time and space or... Like become a different person or just die horribly. So, um, you know, I was writing that and it's very much influenced by, you know, the Arkady brothers and Tarkovsky, and and the idea of um, all of the pre and post Chernobyl, you know, Soviet SF about, um, in a way, you know, you think about industrial pollution and the failures of industrial modernity um, that's very prescient, but also, um, you know, just fun. Other other kinds of fun things, uh, you know, Flux and, and like, yeah, how do we just get like the weirdest uh, stuff in the setting and still be true to it and kind of link out to to both halves of Kadita that, that Ian had written. So um, I think we all, yeah, it's, it's it's always fun to kind of talk about influences. And I, I appreciated again not being the writer because I, I love that and I love just working on the design and, and editing um, and getting to see like uh, you know strange guys over East Berlin and be like, oh, this is this makes sense. Like it's not kadita but I totally get how you derive Kadita from this graphic novel about the the cold War,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and now i gotta oh i gotta check out dmz i've heard this i feel like maybe vex you've told me this but the comic dmz yeah it is a good one i haven't read that either i'll have to check it out
1: yeah i like this so is the dmz in kadita is that a demagicalized zone or is it a
0: <laughs> it is uh actually the chapter it's called the span so oh, Ian okay. had come up with this concept and i asked Ian if, if i could write you know a chapter that was just lists of stuff in the span basically so it's really in the, at the heart of the This book is a lot of these kind of random tables. It's very OSR-y in that sense. Um, It's really meant to be, as Ian said, it's a manual for GMs to run lots and lots of versions of kinds of spy things, and you can take it in different directions. But so the span is really weird, and so the ones I wrote are are, are pretty weird. But uh, it is technically, let's see, what is it called? It is a a, uh, quarantine zone and a quantum haunting zone. So it is called a Demilitarized Quantum Haunting Quarantine Zone, or DQHQZ. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, back. rolls off the tongue
0: yeah it's
2: so yeah. short you know i think <laughs> the thing is probably free kadita probably has a much longer and more specific style name in the way that sort of that soviet bloc or chinese area communists would have a very literal interpretation yeah, yeah. of exactly what it is
0: yeah. right well that um, might be the free kadita name then i mean because you know that probably this, would be yeah Krim the, the span runner giving you this perspective is is technically not aligned right so he's you know his apartment was in Kedida, but he he spends all his time in the span anyway so a worshipful to you
2: yeah worshipful company would call it like an opportunity zone or
0: something like that because <laughs> anything could happen that's a real term uh that i don't know if you know that in yes. yeah in the u.s which is yeah it, it is a problematic term in real life and in the game yeah. mm-hmm. um all right well are there some final questions mum vibes. Mom vibes like mum raw vibes next or like mother
1: vibes. Yeah, the, for, for the podcast, if those listening, Hexadexagon uh, Hex has, has said, "I wish I could remember what comic had an alien leviathan with mum vibes, M-U-M dash vibes, because that was a still fleet character for sure." I don't, I don't know. A alien leviathan with chrysanthemum
0: vibes. <laughs> we gotta have Vex. I mean, Vex is a brilliant, brilliant game designer. Uh, they have a lot of good, good ideas and good questions. Um, a matronly, yes, yeah, So m- mom like mom, telepathic okay. okay. matron. Um, any last questions? So, uh, Ian, is there anything we didn't cover? Uh, this is not, again, to pitch. Uh, so this was a Kickstarter we ran last summer. So it's now the, the end of 2023. We ran it in the middle of 2023. The book is going to come out uh, very soon as a digital object. And then, who knows, some months from now as a book uh, that then you know gets shipped out to anyone who ordered it. Um, and we'll also have extras this time. We printed a bunch more. So we'll have more to sell than just the ones that were sold on Kickstarter. Um, the Kickstarter... Price is always the lowest price because otherwise, sort of, you know, what's the point, right? We're trying to be nice to people who bought a Kickstarter. Um, but right now, actually, we, we're not even really selling it. So it's just a matter of um, kind of talking about game design. And, and I appreciate, Ian, I just want to kind of congratulate and, and talk to you because uh, we hadn't touched base in a while in a serious way, but um, for extending the game and, and, and all these things we talked about, you know, thinking through um, from classes to factions to, to you know the, the sorts of stories you wanted to communicate. Uh, but yeah, is there anything we have not covered um that you wanted to shout out? Any any uh, particularly interesting bits that you wanted people to kinda of look for? Easter eggs. I mean back. I think I think the thing in the book that
2: people are looking forward to and I'm looking forward to lots of fan art is uh Oom, um, old uh you know, old Office Max, uh Kadita's Sexiest Fax Machine. <laughs> um, that every time we play tested, I, you know, every play tester who were all really wonderful people, but they would ask like, when this Oom was around, like, well, what is Oom thinking? What is Oom doing? Like, that's what people really wanted to know was about this, you know, this sort of. That's where I put the James Bond influence was. I thought it was just funny to have a, um sort of a ladies' man who was a fax machine, Um <laughs> and I thought. You know, and they were like, how is he a ladies man? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, he listens really well. That's really what it comes down to. I feel um, like you're
0: selling it short, too, because he's not just a ladies man fax machine. I'm going to p- try to pull up the image real fast uh, before we run. But he's he, it, they are a uh, mobster, right? They're like a mm-hmm. mo- fax machine who works for the informatic mafia. Uh, so sort of all of the AI who can tr- try to sort of manipulate the economy just to make to sort of cover their bases in terms of protecting, you know, themselves. Um, yes. But Oom um is like their face. He, he because everybody loves Oom. Um. Um, so that was a fun one to ask Ethan to sort of bring to life. Uh, he actually did two versions, which we could, we could look at both, but sort of realistic or like cute. And then, uh, yeah, I would say those are the, the two realistic and cute, uh, which are very mm-hmm. different. Um,
2: I think, I think to the larger point, one of the bigger things I really learned, or two of the big things I learned in writing the prop about Kadida and like making this book is the first one is that it's just never too late in a way that like i came into games much older than folks did but that doesn't mean you can't get in right it's not as if someone says oh i should have done this when i was 20 or i should have done this when i was a teenager but there's never been a point to say like okay it's too late for me or this has passed me by i can't do it um that's a thing um and i guess the other thing is like how much you know it's so much better when you don't do it by yourself and that's a big thing that i learned too. That, trying to write stuff like trying to write dissertation or academic research can be a lot of solo work that can be very lonely and also just very diff- really really hard and this was so much of a better process in every way by having people who really cared and also just trying not to do it by yourself as much as you can and recognizing that even even my wife was looking at tables over and over again like i try to get her to look at the tables and that made a difference and we had wife editing we had jet you know jet who was also part of the studio editing and i could talk with people about it um in Stillfleet discord and just recognizing that i didn't have to go by myself so if people are listening and they have an idea the best thing to do is to really get people with you and to find people you trust to give you feedback get started and that's just a good place to start is to recognize you're not alone
0: oh yeah yeah I- that's a really good point, point. Um, and that's one reason we we started the podcast. Even Chris, I would say, yeah. right? I mean, is to just have a place to talk through game design because it's fun, but also it's helpful to bounce ideas off of other folks and and not yeah not feel like your uh, your hobby is so you know weird and idiosyncratic that only you can sort of <laughs> do it. Um, Don't live in a void. Yeah,
1: and you know uh, it, it these is. It is community production that creates something as sexy as this fax machine, which I'm sorry for the folks listening on the podcast later. I'm sorry you can't see this. We'll have to put a
0: link in the show notes or something. something.
1: you got to see this fax machine.
0: Yeah, we may have to do like a special drop um, where we just share some some art by <laughs> Ethan and credit them. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Ethan sexy. did the two versions. It's a fax machine that's realistically a fax machine, but a mobster, so it's a fax machine <laughs> wearing a... Huge gold necklace.
2: <laughs> and with a watch next it's to a it on the little cart. I love that the watch is
1: like dangling off the table a little bit.
0: Yeah. And Oom um has stats. Oom um is statted out and can move around. um <laughs> And then, yeah, the original one that, that we thought of was like, okay, clearly the fax machine is like a little human, sort of gnome sized, like body. a
1: jaunty um, little step.
0: Oh, yeah, we need to add the emote. Uh, That's a good point, Vex. Just um, into the Stealthy Discord. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, Chris, did you have any any uh, last thoughts, questions? This has raised, you know, questions in, in overall yeah. for game design, as usual, which is, is always good. Um,
1: uh, no, nothing else from my end except to say thanks, thanks for joining us again. It's been great. Uh, I'm I'm very excited to look through Kabita when it gets a little bit more more polish on it. Uh, although I'm sure I could probably just look through it now. Uh, yeah, yeah. Excited, excited to play through it. Excited to run it.
2: Cool. Yeah. I'm excited to hear what people have to say about it when they run it. And um, just, I'm also really excited to see what people build from it in the way that I hope that since I built from Wythe's world, I want people to build from Kadita too. So like take the parts that you like and throw out the parts that aren't fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. Yeah. We love that. And, uh, and that was very much, you know, always something I wanted to do with uh, Stillfleet is not make it feel, we wanted, I wanted it to be like a real polished book, but I wanted to feel very much like, please do stuff with this, hack it, change it. Um, so I appreciate again, you know, Kadita being for various reasons. I think largely it was sort of far along uh, as I recall was we were talking about it. We, I think I played in your playtest. test. Um, I don't even think I finished cause I, I missed the last game or whatever, but, um, but I felt like, Oh wow, this is like a book, um, not just, you know, a venture or mini venture. Um, so thanks Ian for kind of working with us and, and, and taking that uh, forward and showing uh, even internally showing us how we could extend um, the game and work with other creators and, and develop, new ideas and, and new products. So it's as we're all learning together, that was that was like one step. Um, and I fucking love spy stuff. I was never going to write my own spy book, but I was really glad when you sort of wrote one for Stillfleet because it felt, it felt bang on. It felt like something I, I would very much endorse and just was never going to get around to. You know, there's too many, I don't know why, there's too obsessed with, with the things I'm obsessed with. I think, Chris, we've talked about that. Like, you just have the same yeah. things you return to. So I keep writing spaceship adventures. Uh, I don't know why. They're not real. <laughs> Spaceships are stupid, but... <laughs> Spaceships um, are awesome. Spaceships are awesome. Yeah, they're great. All right. Well, (laughs) that's some reasons why we roll. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The banjo music starts playing. (laughs) Uh, We need Sam to do a banjo song. Uh, I mean, I I play banjo. We could just, we don't even have to. You don't
1: know that?
0: So many talents. So many talents over here. Keep dropping them on you. Oh. <laughs> yeah, really. Gems, Great voice. People are, we're gonna have to do a whole karaoke episode, maybe with Sam and, and Will oh, or something. Oh
1: that would be pretty fun, actually. Yeah. With the same all I He questions. did a rhythm for us.
0: Um Alright. Next time, something else. Yeah. Uh, but Ian, thanks so much. Uh, thanks everybody listening or watching, and uh yeah, enjoyed designing games.
1: Thanks for listening to Why We Roll. Our theme music is by the brilliant Sam Tindall and Arpline. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can find us on Twitch and what used to be Twitter at Why We Roll and on Instagram at whyweroll.pod. You
1: can find out more about Dance Macabre at timespaceplace.itch.io slash
0: dance macab macabre. You can find out more about Stillfleet at stillfleet.com. Thanks for listening.